Warning, this episode contains graphic description of suicide attempts. I then called my friend who came and picked me up and was like, what have you done? And he was freaking out. He didn't know what to do. And I just said, uh, I got attacked by a dog or something like that. Again, the shame coming up. And he was like, are you sure? Yeah. Hi, I'm Chelsea B. And for those of you who don't know me, let me introduce myself. I'm not a life coach, a therapist, or a certified anything really, except like CPR and first aid. <laughs> Heck, I don't even have a college degree. I am, however, a regular old human with a huge heart and problems just like you. If you're looking for a podcast to solve all of life's mysteries and show you how to become super successful, you're in the wrong place. This is Beyond the Picket Fence, a podcast that tells the behind the scenes of people's lives to remind you that no one is perfect. This is officially your invitation to take a break from trying to keep it all together. Let's get real. This week's guest reached out to me on Facebook Messenger. He came across my show in the podcast course we both take. He sent me a clip of another interview that he did where in the first few seconds he mentioned his suicide attempt. Later, I found out it was not just one, but two suicide attempts. Now he travels the world coaching people on leadership. As someone who struggles with mental health myself, I wondered, how? How do you go from suicidal to happy to successful? I had to know more. This is a glimpse beyond Justin's picket fence. Hi, I'm Justin. Uh, I am a overwhelmed coach for business leaders and managers and uh, originally from South Africa and living in the U.S. now for five years. And I've probably lived in every continent around the world for at least a year. Wow. I think that, that's my claim to fame. I don't know. Is there anything that people normally do when they introduce themselves? I've got three dogs. Love it. You any know? any significant other or children or anything like that? Uh, my wife is an amazing woman and uh, she is just a monster when it comes to her her domain, her industry. She outworks everyone else and we have like the weirdest conversations and interactions and I love her very much. Yeah, that's, uh, Aww, that's where I love we're that. at. I love it. Do you have a podcast? I do. Yes. Tell us about your podcast. So my podcast initially was called Thought Architecture. It's currently called The Way of the Leader. And it's probably going to change again. Uh, the reason for that is um, it's 20 minutes of my thoughts on a particular topic that seems self-indulgent, but I really wanted something like if I died tomorrow that like my niece has access to to understand who I was. And a lot of that actually comes out of um, what I wish my dad had done as well, yeah. or like the amount of information I knew about my dad too. Aw, okay. Well, that seems like a good segue as any. So why don't you go back and you start from where you feel like your story starts? Um, so we originally contacted each other. Uh, well, I contacted you and I was very interested in your show because, you know, it's this idea of the appearances that, that you know, other people see and, you know, what people project onto you is not actually the reality. There's usually the commonality between all humans is that we're all traumatized <laughs> to some degree and we feel like this shame or guilt around it. And, you know, I'm very familiar with that because my own trauma um, you know, when I was growing up was such that by the age of 17, I tried to take my own life and, um, you know, my parents <clears throat> managed to, uh, help me to not necessarily achieve success there. And, 
you know, being in hospital, of course you get put on psychiatric holds and all that kind of stuff and therapy. And, but I just wasn't engaged in it and I didn't want to know about it. And by the age of 20, I tried to take my own life again, you know, totally different way, but again, very visceral experiences and trying to hide that away, like some kind of guilty thing, shameful act that I participated in that somehow, you know, when I presented myself to people, it would be viewed as weakness. Mm. And um, the older that I got and the more that I learned about people, it actually became a feature. You know, people connected with me based on that. And especially once I had healed those wounds, you know, why wouldn't I want to tell anyone about this? Because the idea is normalizing what we go through when we're younger, especially, you know, growing up and we, we feel that amount of shame around it. We feel like we're on our own. And really, the biggest issue is a lack of transparency and a lack of communication. And so that's why I, I loved your show. You know, you talk about these things like, you know, just before this call, we were talking about it. And you're like, yeah, more information is always better. I don't mind sharing with people. I'm like, that is great. I love yes. it. <laughs> I wear my heart on my sleeve all the time because I, I used to think it was a weakness, you know, that I mm. talk so much and that. I don't have any secrets. And, and then I read Brene Brown's book that talks about vulnerability being a superpower. And I'm like, Oh snap, actually, I think this is good. Um, so will you take me back through your childhood? Like when you talk about trauma, traumatic childhood, what did that look like for you? The basic premise is that, you know, like I didn't have a particularly like rough childhood or anything like that. You know, I had to deal with normal things that anyone would have to deal with. So there wasn't any particular strong trauma. And I'm, I'm very acutely aware of that. And it's also normalizing that and to say like, you know, we're all in our own bubbles. And so what traumatizes us depends on, you know, how much we've been, had experience to how much we can actually uh, grow through that. So I didn't have any particularly strong traumas, but I had very bad coping strategies for things that I was weak at, for example, um, showing value in social groups, and so I started to be the person who was like super extreme with everything, you know, super provocative and confrontational. And, um, and I remember a lot of this actually stems out of the relationship, let's say, with my parents, where I wanted them to show up in my life in one way. But of course, my parents are my parents and they showed up as best as they could. You know, there's no fault. They were behaving in ways that they knew how to behave and with the best of intentions. And of course, as kids, we completely twist that around. So my parents weren't, um, you know, monsters by any stretch of the imagination. They're great parents, you know, and my upbringing wasn't some tragedy or anything like that. But the way that a young mind makes sense of the world is usually very reactive and trying to get validation externally, security externally, you know, some kind of sense of self-worth from others. And of course, when people don't give it to you in the way that that you want it, that becomes problematic. And, and again, it's also this idea that whenever people disapprove of us, it's got nothing to do with us. It's all about them and, and what they see as valuable. But I, you know, as children, we internalize that type of talk as you're not good enough here and you need to do this in order to be good enough. And for me, that was, you know, my dad had wonderful expectations of me. Like he handed me one day a musical instrument that I, I had no experience with. And in like, it was, I think it was two hours. He expected me to kind of like play a song by ear, just figure it out. And I remember not wanting to disappoint my dad and trying to play this, it's called a penny whistle and trying to play this penny whistle. And for two hours, I was like crying and like, I can't do it. What's wrong with me? And of course, 
that idea means that I overcompensated with this concept of like, if I don't have the skills necessary, I'm not good enough. If I'm not competent, if I don't know enough, I'm not good enough. And so that totally sent me into this realm of, um, you know, being obsessed with skill acquisition, being obsessed with learning, being obsessed with knowledge to the point now that, you know, um, early forties and I could probably, you know, talk at a university level on very many subjects. So that's know, really cool. Strength and a weakness, I suppose, but, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm so grateful that you said this because I so often look at my life, you know, I gather all of these stories that are like, you, you listen to the Jacqueline Hyde episode. Like I gather all these stories where people have been through insanely difficult things. And I look back on my life and I'm like, where, like, why do I have the right to even think I have depression or anything? Because I have two parents that love each other and I had a beautiful life growing up. We were poor, but that was about it. Like, how did I get so screwed up in my brain to where I'm not good enough and my confidence is so low when I didn't have a traumatic childhood, like you said. So mm -hmm. thank you for giving me the permission <laughs> to like, let that be enough, even though it wasn't anything hard, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. No, no, no. And it's very normal. And you know, that's why like, you know, I love your show, the idea of going beyond the picket fence, because we all have this, um, let's call it a biological kind of blueprint uh, that activates neuropathways that tells us this is how you survive. If you comply if you are, you know, docile, if you are fitting in, in the ways that you are reading in behavior. So, you know, if your parents are very abusive because they're fighting all the time and by you speaking up, they'll direct that anger at you. You learn not to speak up, you know, and I'm okay if I don't interrupt, if I don't speak up, I'm okay if there isn't conflict. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the compensation patterns is we just never update them. So I call it like human software and we're running on yes. software and everybody's brain is programmed to behave like this because it's programmed to keep us alive. And so, again, this concept of no bad parts, I'm sure if you've if you've read Brene Brown, you've also heard of this idea, this concept. There are no bad emotions. There are no bad reactions. Everything is inside you is, is just literally to keep you alive. And so yeah. we're going to get what is a child's mind, uh, you know, interpret everything to be. And then we're going to start practicing the cues to activate a neural pathway, which then also produces as a side effect an emotion. And so this kind of sequence of things, it's very typical that you've got people who are seemingly, you know, everyday people. And when you go inside, there's all these projections about not enoughness. And how do we yes. overcome that? I just want to reiterate that to make sure you heard what he just said. When you go inside, there's all the projections of not enoughness. And how do we overcome that? Knowing that Justin had multiple suicide attempts, I know there were some dysfunctional neuropathways that kept firing in his mind. I wanted to go back and learn what was going on around 16 and 17 to lead him to that decision. So at the time, the first suicide, um, a lot of what was going on in my mind was I'm not worthy of being in social groups um, because I, I looked at what I valued in social groups as being center of attention. Um, and that's not my personality naturally, you know, that comes out because of everything we talked about, about childhood and stuff like that. My personality is naturally to be um, a little bit more back, 
and observing things because I like to learn. I like to see behaviors, but I always wanted to be the karate kid, the center of attention rather than the Mr. Miyagi at the back of the dojo. Mm -hmm. so to speak. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, as I date myself by my movie references, but, um, the, the concept is, is that in the social groups, I always saw myself as not valued, even though I had friends that, you know, loved me and loved spending time with me. I always saw myself as not enough. You know, I projected my bigger brother as being like the epitome of what I need to be, what I should be in order to be valued. And mm -hmm. there's a concept. Uh, I, I love this principle, this quote that I learned in my coaching training. Uh, it comes from core energy coaching. And they say, uh, doing is effort, but being is effortless. And so this concept is, is that I had to do so much in order to feel like I was valued by a group. And that, it just became too much at one point. That coupled together with the fact that I felt like I wasn't supported, you know, I wasn't seen or valued uh, by other people around me. And that's because I was looking for love, recognition, appreciation to look like what I was conditioned to expect, which was, you know, movies, people, you know, groveling at your feet and saying, you're amazing. And no one said, I'm amazing, you know. Um, so clearly I'm not valuable. And so learning how to recognize love and appreciation, and then also having this false expectation of what it looks like to be valued or what I need to do in order to be valued. Uh, I think mm -hmm. those two things compounded and it just took one bad day. How often do you catch yourself wishing people would tell you you're amazing? And when they don't, you think there's something wrong with you. Chances are they're stuck in their brain wishing someone would tell them how amazing they are too. They aren't even thinking about you. And I bet if they had an assignment to sit and write all about you, they would write how amazing you are and you would do the same for them. But we get so stuck in our own ego, worried about ourselves. We miss the amazing within us and surrounding us. Look for ways to tell people that they're amazing and sometimes even more difficultly, tell yourself. And watch how that just melts away all of the not enoughness. Back to Justin, where one bad day was just too much to handle. One bad day where things weren't in alignment and snap, you know, and that decision comes so quickly, which is why, um, you know, this concept of, uh, it's so interesting because when I share with people that I have tried to kill myself or that you know, something along those lines, and I come across people who I've talked two or three people down from the ledge because they share with me, like, I'm really suicidal. Life's not going well. No, 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 no. And most people would run away from that situation or tell people like, don't you dare, you know, you're selfish or, and coming from this place of complete understanding that all that they need is just a little bit of time and they need to be seen. They need to be heard. They need to be appreciated to get them off that ledge for that one more day so that they can start, you know, making choices or choosing or getting the help that they need through, you know, licensed professionals or whatever it is mm -hmm. and literally talking to people and just saying, um, yeah, that's understandable. Like what's going on? Well, this, this bad, 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 bad. It's totally understandable. I totally get it. You know, it makes complete sense. And they're just like, it does, it does. Yeah, it does. And they're just walking through this idea of like, well, how would you do it? And it sounds so brazen to ask a person how they would do it conceptually because they're usually so stuck in the emotion of I'm worthless to then walk through the mechanics of exactly how they would take their own lives. And them sp sp 
spilling it out and actually going there, they're like, oh, actually, I don't want this. Mm. So it's been quite interesting to kind of open up to people. And so for me to to go from that point as well, where I didn't feel valued by others and I had so much to do. And, you know, that basically was the same reason for the second time around. I didn't solve those problems. I didn't change the perspective. And I think personally, it's always about how you arrange your, your cues, your information, whatever it is that you're paying attention to. So my brother always likes to give me this metaphor. A happy dog will walk into a room full of mirrors and be happy because it sees, you know, 20 other friends wagging their tails very mm -hmm. happy. And, you know, a nervous reactionary dog will go into a room and start growling because he's 20 others and the 20 others will be growling back. And mm -hmm. just a shift in perspective will change the reaction to the environment. So, you know, something like, you know, none of this is a reflection of you. This is how you kept yourself alive for so long. That takes a lot of pressure off and be like, oh, wait a minute. This is normal. This is actually how humans work. Our minds, our nervous systems are wired to behave like this. This isn't actually anything to do with my sense of value. And not just that, but, you know, for the first 25 years of our lives, we're told what to do in order to comply with the society we live in. And things like, you know, go to school and get good grades. Our parents have best of intentions for us because they want us to be secure. But that also means like, in order to, to, to be valuable, we have to get good grades or say please and say thank you and uh, you know behave in these ways or the tribe will reject you is really what's going mm -hmm. on. But then after the age of 25, we're told be yourself, be unique, be a unique snowflake. Otherwise, you're not going to you know, make your mark on the world. And, and those two uh, points of view are actually conflicting. Yeah. So how do we resolve that? How do we reconcile that? And that's ultimately what the upgrade of software, um, you know, needs to look like is yeah. how do we be ourselves uniquely as well and take complete ownership of these things. So before you attempted suicide at 17, do you think that you like clinically had depression? Mm, yes. So I was also, yeah, I was diagnosed and then um, I was given medication as well. And yeah. 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 Would you consider yourself now as clinically having depression? No, no. Really? I, I don't think I felt depression in two decades. As someone with clinical depression, I was flabbergasted. I needed to know more. So I asked him to walk me through his suicide attempts if he was willing. Selfishly, I wanted to understand. There was a, there was actually a uh, poison. It was a dog dip that was in our house and it was called triatics. And I still remember it. And I basically put it into a glass and poured myself a glass and just drank it and felt like vomiting straight away. I ate a, you know, a piece of bread to kind of keep it down and, and I went to bed. And then for me, it was, you know, three days later waking up in hospital from this dreamlike state. I didn't even, mm. I didn't even wake up. It was more like I was in a living dream, like in the hospital. And, um, my parents apparently, like my mom heard me stumbling around in my room and I was just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, as I was falling over, trying to stand up and fall over and trying to stand up. And I can only imagine how traumatic that must have been for my mom. And uh, yeah, they drove me to a hospital and at the time they couldn't afford um, to send me to a private hospital and public healthcare in South Africa at the time was terrible. And it's, I mean, it still is terrible, but you can imagine they don't, if like a patient's got blood on the sheets, 
they just wash the sheets. They can't actually afford the bleach to bleach the sheets or burn the sheets and buy new sheets. And so, you know, like you're literally lying in a, ble- a bed that's got, you know, stained blood or, you know, stained urine or something like that. Um, you don't have anywhere near the level of care that you would have in a private facility or even a, in a first world facility. Wow. So I, I woke up in that and, you know, I was told that I had a fight with someone else who was in there who was uh, hitting me with a stick. And I, I kind of remember it, but it's, again, it's just this fuzzy dream. And uh, yeah, and then of course I came out of that and I realized, you know, what had happened and I was at home and I shut down emotionally. I was so ashamed. There was so much shame around that and I felt so guilty and I just didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want anyone to give me any attention. And of course, a lot of anger then came out of that as well. Mm -hmm. And so people just learned to leave me alone and not necessarily push the topic because I didn't have the particular um, upgrades, the, the strategies to be able to cope with that. Yeah. Being in this niche of mental health, I have so many close friends who really have to fight to choose to stay every day. And Mm -hmm. even myself, when I, I don't know if you know my story, but after my son coded, I had some pretty bad PTSD and depression and whatever. I still am working to get through it, but there's times when you're just like, I would be like curled up laying on my floor, not knowing how to keep going and just Mm -hmm. feeling like you really do feel like you're the only one that has ever felt this way and the world would just be better off without you. I'm too scared to kill myself. I'm a wimp. I like couldn't really do it. I just remember feeling like I need to stop existing. I want to stop existing because I'm a burden to my family. My poor husband has to deal with this and I can't function. I can't do the dishes. I can't do the laundry. Like I'm a broken wife. I do love my children. So I wouldn't, that's another reason like I couldn't do it because of my children. But mm-hmm. it's interesting how, you know, because I've kind of become a person that people come to and say like, today is really hard. I can't do it anymore. And I don't know what to say to that because I'm, I'm just like, yeah, you're right. Like I've gotten to the point where in my mind, oh my gosh, my dog is chasing my cat. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> hang on. Oh, we got a new dog and he does not like my cats. Did you hear that? That was crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I don't Please know keep I this saying. in the episode. Please okay, keep it okay. in the episode. <laughs> okay, Just, there's nothing like real life clashing with like this idea of like, let's present our best, you know, our best efforts or something like that. No, so I don't I love, even know I what it. I was saying. <laughs> I think, you know, it's completely understandable to be in this boat where you do feel like in order for me to be, let's say, an, uh, you know, a healthy wife, so to speak, you know, a healthy partner, we need to show up and we've got a series of things that we're responsible for doing, you know, we need to do. And it's very difficult for us to receive a lot of help for, to, for us to receive support. And so one of the strategies is literally this idea of uh, practicing that, you know, how do I practice in moments of low consequence, low stakes, how do I practice asking for support and being supported? And how do I practice feeling okay with not being able to do everything and being, you know, autonomous and, you know, forget, forget the mental health, just even productivity in the U S if you are sick, how many times people actually reject that feeling and I hate being sick. Why am I sick? Oh, I just want to get up and skip. Like, no, this absolutely has a purpose. And there's an opportunity here for you to practice parts of that as well. You know, wow. so there's, there, there is a viewpoint, 
But the thing is, is that you can't just jump there. There's this idea of, um, I think it's uh, David Hawking's, um, who's got this uh, scaled model of emotional frequencies. And you can't just jump from, you know, the first, you know, whatever frequency you're at to like 20 above it. You know, there's a slow sliding scale of moving up. In core energy coaching, the coaching that I was trained in, mm -hmm. there are seven, seven levels of energy of you think, you feel, and you act according to these seven. So level one is this victimhood. So the action is apathy. There is no action. You don't do anything. And the thought is, why me? Why is this happening? So this always happens to me. There's nothing I can do about that. And the feeling is like this hopelessness, this kind of I'm fated to do this, you know, nothing that nothingness, that emptiness as well. And so going from that up to level two, level two is conflict. The emotion is really frustration, anger. And so usually getting a person to a point where, um, first of all, we don't try to move them, but they, they get to the natural end of that feeling and saying, tell me more about that. Oh, I just can't do anything. I just can't do anything. There's a certain point in time of, you know, a coach saying something along the lines of, it's natural that you would feel that given how you're understanding the situation. So there's a validation of like that mindset is going to result in this situation. So don't, don't feel like, you know, it's you alone. This is normal for anyone in your situation to be, to, to feel it's, it's an understandable reaction. And that first and foremost helps us to feel a little bit more like people see us, people hear us, you know, we're yeah. not seen as something that's ridiculous or, yeah. you know, unwanted, broken, like you were saying. Yeah, because I get to the point when my friends are telling me this and I was in the same boat where it's like, honestly, like this is unhealthy and I'm just going to say it because we're real here. Like it gets to the point where I'm like, if you do take your life, I understand because it's so hard. It's so hard to keep going and going and going. Like, I don't feel like you're selfish. I feel like I would understand. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it's so hard to just keep going and going. So how did you go from, so from 17 to 20, was that just like your anger, like denial of even being? Yep. So you didn't much. really get any health. So what was your second attempt? My second attempt, I stole a scalpel from my godfather's veterinary practice. And I went to a park and I took about two to three hours of just cutting at my own throat. So I was trying to get to that, uh, you know, that artery that's on the left side, that would mean I would bleed out within seconds. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to a point where I had this huge, I, I think you can see the scar. Yeah, it was yeah. all the way down. Yeah. And, um, you know, I got to the point where I was like, what the hell am I doing? Because despite what you would see in the movies, a scalpel isn't actually that sharp. Yeah. And it cuts through very thin layers of skin you know, like piece by piece, if a scalpel was so sharp, like, you know, people would, um, you know, just with a little bit more of a heavier uh, hand, it would cut through patients, you know, so it's only meant to cut through like a single layer of dermis at a time. And, and of course, there, here I am, like sticking this thing in my throat trying to, and for three hours. And I got to this point where I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Am I really doing this? Am I really doing this again? Mm. Am I really this unhappy? that this is happening again. This is ridiculous. And, and I literally myself moved into that second level of conflict, of frustration and anger, where I was like, this is so stupid. And I, I blamed uh, South Africa and South African culture for putting me in this box where this is what I need to do in order to be successful. You know, and I put it into this box where like, 
you know, girls aren't interested in me unless I have a car and I can't have a car unless I've got a job and I, I can't get a job because, 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 because. And there was this huge cascade of things. And I was like, this is South African culture. And you know what? If I don't fit in here, then that's fine. I'm going to travel the world, float like a leaf on the wind and just see where destiny takes me. And that was my decision. And since making that decision, uh, I then called my friend who came and picked me up and was like, what have you done? And, and of course, I'm sure to, you were bleeding, even though you I was you know, huge, huge gash in oh my, my you know, in my neck. And, and, um, you know, he was freaking out. He didn't know what to do. And I just said, uh, I got attacked by a dog or something like that. Again, the shame coming up and he was like, what? are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, these guys, eventually they took me to hospital. They took me to a paid hospital, uh, and they put down the Clean money. Sheets. In my yeah. Mm-hmm. Parents paid them back and everything. Um, but again, then there was this idea of I'm a burden, you know, I'm causing medical bills for my parents and all of yeah. that. And, um, that happened more or less in the February and by August, I was out of the country already. I had made a plan to go from Johannesburg to London. And um, yeah, basically it took me a couple months of healing. And in that time, I saw a great therapist who really helped me a lot. And it's because I was ready to open up and ready to share mm-hmm. uh, because I was so frustrated and so angry at this. And she, she's like, okay, cool, let's talk. Let's let it out. Let's, let's talk about it. And uh, yeah, I was ready to talk. And I think that's the big thing as well as like, how do we help people go from this place of not ready, feeling like I need to bottle it up and hide it from people to let's talk about it. It's understandable to then, okay, cool. I need to um, somehow take some actions. And so that's level three in this, you know, seven levels of energy is responsibility. How do I take ownership responsibility? And even though I might not like it, I'm like, this is what it is, you know? And let me let me take it and let me take my action as well. What what can I control? So, so yeah, I was at that point. I'm so shocked because when you're in a depressive state, this idea of controlling your thoughts or choosing different thoughts feels insurmountably impossible. I don't even know if that's a word, but just regular impossible doesn't feel hard enough. But here in front of me is someone that did it. So I asked him how. It's totally understandable. And there are, um, I would say, two main things. So I don't want to play down the fact that some people just have a genetic predisposition to, let's say, uh, producing more of one hormone than another, which le- lends them to be more receptive to depression and things like that. But without going for tests and assessing, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not clear to say. Uh, what I think happens a lot more and what's much more in my experience in dealing with clients a lot more that's happening is that people just don't have strategies you know my mom is british and you know the british saying is a stiff upper lip you know just chin up and just carry on you know and uh you know that whole meme of like keep calm and carry on Mm -hmm. and that's very much a british thing like you know there's no time to kind of think about our feelings let's just carry on marching th- through this war and I was, i'm baffled by that because i'm like but you can't just ignore a problem it's still going to be there you know and i'm evidence of that you know two suicides within 3 years of each other 4 years of each other and um the the strategy is what the the issue is and so for the next umpteen years of my life i dedicated myself more to how do I prove value to others? Or how do I just 
invest in myself and just do what I want to do. And it's a very selfish way of being as well. And it robbed me of a lot of pleasure and it created uh, very much an asshole personality in me to where, um, you know, I lost a lot of friends and a lot of people saw me as the asshole and I, you know, it wasn't a good place to be. Um, but, you know, when you're self-important, you know, again, that defeats that. Now, what happened was, and this is something that I, I mentioned to you at the beginning of the call, my dad passed away in 2015. And whenever my dad like had an issue, like he had a heart attack, uh, 2010-ish around there, maybe earlier, 20, 2007, I think it was, he had a heart attack in South Africa. And my parents aren't well off by any stretch of the imagination. So they had to borrow money, you know, to then get my dad in hospital and, um, I came back and at the time I had just received an inheritance from a, an uncle who had passed away as well. And I just gave them the entire inheritance. I paid off all his medical bills and I stayed with them for three months while I, you know, he was kind of getting his life back on track after having, you know, a near fatal heart attack. And, um, so, you know, I found a good way to connect with them to, you know, they were vulnerable finally with me, you know, excellent. This is great. Um, but again, I was an asshole. So, you know, it wasn't so nice for them, I, I'm sure. Um, but when when this happened again, my dad uh, got a cancer diagnosis. I went back, I tried to help. And then a few years later, when he passed from the cancer, when I went back, um, it was very difficult. And I just put all my feelings in a box and I left it alone. A year after that, I still remember this. I read an article in a magazine and it was, all these people who were in their 30s and they were speaking to their parents and they were saying, what did you want for me when I was a kid? And what do you think of my life today? And the parents were being very honest with them. And I thought, wow, this is a great idea. I need to do this with my, my, my mom, you know, and ask her about this. And I said, you know, what did you want for me when you were, when I was a kid? Did you, did you see me being skilled in any particular thing and going into, did you want me to become a doctor or something? She says, no, no, no. I just wanted you to be happy. That's all your father and I ever wanted was you to be happy. And I'm like, what about now? What about now? Are you proud of me now? Are you proud of me today? And she's like, oh, yes, very proud of you. You've done a lot of things. You've accomplished a lot. So at the time, I was um, within languages. I was a language teacher. I was a, you know, one of the senior teachers and uh, managers in the school. And the school was the best in the country, rated by you know the British Council and all these other kind of governing bodies. Um, and I had been speaking on stages of you know international teachers conferences i'd spoken on three or four different stages i'd been sent to poland to go and give uh workshops and i'd been sent by the british council as well to go to brazil to go and promote like learning in the uk so there was there was all these kind of like accolades and then on top of all of that um i got my master's degree at the you know like i went back to school because i didn't have a degree from south africa i just left so soon and um, I applied for a master's degree um, instead of just getting an associate's degree first. I was like, ah, master's degree. And they were like, yes, we'll let you in. And so I got my master's degree without having an associate's degree as well, because I had um, years of experience in the field as well. And so like my university professor was speaking on the same stages as I was as well, which is quite cool. And, um, you know, so like there's all these accolades and I taught in all these different countries and I figured so much out about language learning and, you know, I was like, yeah, are you proud of me? And she's like, yeah, of course I'm proud. And then I thought back to her original question, uh, her original statement. All she wanted was for me to be happy. And I said, do you think I'm happy? 
And she looked, you know, she looked at me and she said, I don't think you've ever been happy in your life. And, and that hit like a ton of bricks and, and people were, you know, when people hear the story, they're like, Ooh, your mom's a bit like hardcore. I'm like, no, I just, I thought she was actually just being honest with me. And since that moment, I've been obsessed with, well, what does that look like and who's got answers and how do they put this type of thing together? One of the answers, and this is finally going to answer your question of like, what can we do about this, is this idea um, called the Broaden and Build Theory by Dr. or Professor Barbara Fredrickson. And I modified it a little bit and, and I use it all the time and I use it with my clients as well, which is how do we promote um, positive emotions that can then be used as strategies for difficult situations instead of, you know, the natural responses. So, you know, in, uh, so I've got a program, a coaching program, and the idea is that phase one is getting really familiar and friendly with your natural responses, your inner critic, you know, your false understanding of who you are. And it's really becoming aware of that, loving that, accepting that, and then taking ownership and like, okay, it's time for a change. The second step is then going to be looking at, all right, well, what can we use instead of these pathways? And so for me, this is a this has been like the major thing that I've used is these six core questions, ultimately just designed to try and promote and stimulate these feelings as much as possible. So question number one is, what am I curious about? And the idea is that curiosity leads us to explore a particular topic without any need for a result, some kind of success at the end. It's just the joy of exploration. What's down this road? Let's go take a look. And so literally it's this idea of like, what am I, what am, what am I curious about? And promoting a lot more curiosity. So even if I feel a dark feeling, it's like, huh, that's super interesting. I wonder why I feel like that. I wonder what's triggering me right now. Like, you know, so I might get a fleeting kind of, you know, moment where the child mind activates that neural pathway and I get triggered. And then part of me gets curious about being triggered. And I, I sit outside myself. I'm like, wow, I just behaved like on an automatic loop. Wow, that was so interesting. I wonder why that happened. I wonder what I can do. I wonder what, and it's all that line of questioning of that's interesting. That's curious. What's down this road? And it always comes back down to, I was triggered because a need wasn't being met. And I wasn't sure how to meet that need myself or how to ask someone to help me meet that need. Mm. So that's step number one. What am I curious about? I, I think I double think a lot. And so when I, everything's going well, and then I drop a ball and forget to do something I was supposed to do for church or something. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst ever. I, I suck at everything. I need to quit my whole life. Like, and then I am mad instead of being curious. I'm like, oh, I thought I made progress. And now here I am thinking these horrible thoughts again. I suck. So then it's like saying <laughs> I suck and then like double thinking that I super suck. And yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> so this is, um, if you're familiar with uh, Alan Watts, I'm not a huge fan of Alan Watts, but I, I know um, his work and he calls this the vicious cycle. So let's say we get worried, but then we notice ourselves being worried. And so we start to get worried that we're worried. Mm -hmm. And then doubly, we become aware that we're worried as a result of our initial state of being worried. And that worries us even more. And it's this vicious cycle Ugh. of worry concern. And so I call this the meta emotion, you know, the emotions that we have about emotions. 
And it was very interesting. I think eHarmony, funnily enough, rated people and put them together based on their meta emotions. So how do you feel about it when a person expresses anger in public, you know, and your judgment of that anger shows your meta emotion, for example. So I I found that quite interesting. I don't think it was very successful personally, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, so the meta emotion is always this idea of like, okay, you feel an initial emotion and those initial emotions, you absolutely won't be able to help. They're natural. They are hardwired into your head. And for you to change that, is as difficult as changing which hand you use to open a door. Mm. You know, it it takes a long time, a lot of effort to constantly remind yourself, use a different hand, use a different hand. And it's very natural for a certain hand to reach for the door, you know? And, um, you know, you're basically going against something that is decades long in the making. So it's very natural for you to have initial reactions, but your judgments of those reactions is something that we can work on. Because you forgot something. Is it understandable that you forgot something? Absolutely. And anyone can kind of rationalize that out. But what is the emotion that you are having, which is a reaction? So you judge mm. yourself and you say things like, oh, I'm so terrible. I'm, you know, and then you get worried that you just said you're so terrible or something like that. Yes. And <laughs> the initial judgments of yourself shows what was considered valuable. So what that means is when you were growing up, what you consider to be valuable, the way to get attention, security, validation from parents and caregivers around you was to always be on the ball. And if you weren't mm. on the ball, there was some kind of like a uh, smack of the hand or something like that. And that was conditioned into you that it's not okay to, to be flawed. It's not okay to drop the ball once in a while. Like you have to be a perfectionist. You have to do everything. You have to be everything. And that idea about doing, doing, doing presents us with a lot of what are that mm-hmm. and so we get to a place where how can how can i number one raise awareness to when i'm doing this and what's triggering it and then number two see it that it had a purpose in the past to keep me alive to keep me safe to keep me secure it had a purpose it doesn't have a purpose today so that judgment that you have today doesn't need to be distanced from your opinion you don't need to judge yourself for judging yourself that's not how we get out of this but how we get out of this is seeing that your judgment is totally understandable, totally reasonable. And you know what? It's kind of like a guard dog that was protecting you in the past. But now that you can protect yourself, you've learned Krav Maga. You don't need this guard dog to be a guard dog anymore. And it's just kind of teaching it to chill out and relax a lot more. Let me interrupt this story for a quick second to introduce you to this incredible podcast. Hey, I'm Gabby Wilkinson, and I am the creator of Dear God, I'm Sad. Dear God, I'm Sad is a brand that I created with a mission to craft a healthier and more holistic relationship between mental illness and Christianity. One of the ways that I'm doing this is by hosting a weekly podcast called the Dear God, I'm Sad podcast. So join me in this mission as I interview experts and contemporary scholars in the field of mental illness, faith, and the intersection of the two, share stories from people who have experiences with mental illness and faith, and provide my own thoughts as a chemically imbalanced Christian. All this with the hopes that these conversations and stories and thoughts diminish the stigma of mental illness and faith spaces and promote healthy responses to mental illness by faith leaders. You can find me and keep up with the brand at DearGod underscore I'm sad on Instagram. And you can listen to the Dear God I'm Sad podcast everywhere you get podcasts. So join me for this ride as we foster in this new age of Christianity where we respond to mental illness with compassion and kindness 
and goodness and beauty. So I will see you next Monday. Now back to Justin. So I kind of want to pivot into this idea of happiness that um, you were kind of blaming South African culture, but it is kind of just humanity culture, I think, of like, even in, you know, starting my own business with the podcast and stuff, you hear these business people that are preaching like, go hard, spend all your money before you have it. You can't make money unless you spend money. And if you don't have 10,000 downloads, you're not successful. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's this push, push, push mentality. And I find myself judging myself, like you said, because this idea of happy that we think the whole world needs. You know what I mean? Like if my house is beautiful and if I have a successful job, but most of my happiest moments are doing little tiny, like sitting at the park, having a picnic with my kids. You know what I mean? And so how do we, how do we find, I guess, okayness with being happy with things that make you happy, even though it's not what the world would say should make you happy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, it makes total sense. Um, so one of the perspectives that I, I I use for people, you know, it's in my program as well, is basically um, it comes out of the Human Givens Institute, which is a psychotherapy counseling institute. Fantastic book. Highly recommend reading that. Um, and there are nine human needs emotional needs let's call them like emotional or psychological nutrition and you need them and we think that you know like when i achieve this success ah i'll be okay and it's more this idea of like i want you to think about it like showering you know some people need a shower more often because they sweat more or because they're exercising more or whatever the case may be and some people you know shower less why because you know they're very inactive they don't do anything or you know, they don't, uh, they're in cold weather, something like that, you know, whatever it is. But there's always a ratio, which is always going to be good. So um, one of these needs is the need for privacy, the need to be alone, the need to reflect. And so I never, I, you know, I, it's actually quite relieving for me to say this to a lot of parents where I'm like, you do need time on your own. For a lot of partners, you do need time on your own. And it's, the question of how much time compared to your partner, compared to the times of others. So, you know, for me, I'm very much an indoor cat and I'm very much like, you know, the classic introvert. I, I enjoy a lot of time on my own, you know. Um, my partner doesn't mind. She's, she's very busy. Um, she likes to do a lot of stuff. She's a tasker. And so for me to be on my own and for her to carry on doing tasks, great. You know, we seem to work well together, but if I'm not getting enough time on my own, I will actually communicate that to her and be like, I have this need for privacy, for time on my own to sit and reflect and to think about things. Um, would you mind giving me two hours, you know? And so like, this is how I get my nutrition. So there are nine of these human needs. And, you know, once again, it's just this idea of spending time with your kids in a park is going to activate and, and feed that need a lot more than a nice looking house, a lot more. And it also speaks to which of the nine needs, right? So the nine needs basically are um, security, safety, security. So a house would give you that psychological safety and security as well. Like I can speak up, speak my thoughts and I won't be shut down for speaking out. You know, so uh, kids in a classroom speaking up, but miss, what about blah, 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 shut up. 
sit down, do your work. Like that's not safe and secure. So being able to bring these concerns up, but that doesn't mean that um, they're valid. It's a concern. Cool. Uh, yes, I hear you. We're not talking about that today, but thank you very much for raising that. We're going to talk about that next week. Great. Cool. You know, tick that box. Seen and heard. Feel like if I can raise an issue, I'm not going to get fired as well. So that's where I work with a lot of leaders and business managers. So, um, you know, security. Then we've also got intimacy. Now, intimacy is not what most people go to, like, oh, sex. Intimacy is having someone who knows you and every part of you, all the ugly parts as well, and they're still with you. They don't care. You know, they know where all the bodies are buried. They know all your shameful things, and they'll help you bury another body if you ask them. And that feeling of this person accepts me no matter what. So, you know, if you're holding back on secrets or things like that between partners, Intimacy, you know, like you were saying, vulnerability, sharing, transparency, practice it, you know, and this is one of the biggest things that I say to my clients is it's all about load management. You don't just go into a gym and try and pick up 200 pounds without any kind of build up to that. So you have to go for this progressive state of overload. Okay, cool. What can I do today manageably? Let me add a little bit more. So I'm uncomfortable, but confident, uncomfortable, but confident, uncomfortable, but confident. And so you release more and more of your shameful, dark, hidden secrets. And you see, you know, without consequence, how people will respond to you. And that's how you get that need for intimacy met. And a lot of people have very high needs for intimacy. They want to, they want to really be in that partnership and bonded, or they want to feel that, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood, friendship, whatever it is. And other people just, you know, the, the scores are like, well, if we're in the same room, that's good enough for me. So everybody's got their own, <laughs> their own levels of this, you know? Um, yeah. And so, you know, the next one is meaning and purpose. Uh, the one after that, uh, I'm going through the acronym in my head is SIMPASCAC. So it's, uh, yeah, security, intimacy, um, meaning and purpose, privacy. That's the one we talked about already. Oh, yes. And then attention is after that. And, you know, giving and receiving attention as a form of like emotional nutrition, you know, like I, I receive attention, people give me attention. And then also I give attention. So I'm always a huge one for um, if someone feels like, um, you know, they're always focused on their kids or focused on giving, 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 receiving attention can be quite difficult. A lot of people are uncomfortable with receiving help, attention, support, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, but that's a great way as well to make sure that um, friendships are built, uh, partnerships are built, is doing something specifically for that person and giving to them. So it's a great way to build. And you you appreciate it a lot when people do it for you as well. So the next one is then status. Some feeling like you hold a unique position inside that group of people that you want to belong to as well. Okay. So status is where we identify ourselves as individuals. And for us to do that, we can't just be another cog in the machine. And for that, the easiest way to individuate yourself is usually to know what is it that I've experienced that makes me different? What is it that I've gone through in the past where I feel different to what others have out there? And so this idea of a, I'm not alone because it's natural for people to react like this. But like, mm -hmm. for example, the trauma that you shared about your child all of a sudden individuates you and means that people now recognize that you have emotional depth 
because they would perceive what you went through as more difficult than what they went through as well. And so you now have status, especially when it comes to these situations. Mm. You've got a podcast. The, the, you know, Despite what business people are pushing forward, your podcast speaks to a group of people. Your podcast has a unique identity of looking behind the mask. Mm-hmm. And based on those things, these are values to you and you uniquely alone. Yeah, You might share these values, but your little recipe of combining these ingredients together makes you an individual. And so that automatically is something to take ownership of and to say, this is my status and this is how I enjoy it. So it's usually this, this, this weird kind of dance that we do about how do we create your individuality based on your track record mm-hmm. and put it together in a way that's meaningful for you that also joins in with that meaning and purpose, which would then help us to create challenges for you that would stretch your abilities and in ways that you enjoy. I love this idea of stretching our abilities in ways we enjoy. For me, it's not been forcing my podcast out into the world by sending messages on social media 24-7. It hasn't been producing a new episode every single week. And that's not to say one day that won't be what brings me joy. But for now, I like this idea of slowly turning up the dial, uncomfortable but confident, one level at a time. So I just wanted to touch on one more thing. I feel like, so you are naturally a introvert you said right but when you were younger you tried to force yourself to be extroverted because you felt like that's what was good that's so interesting because I am opposite like I am naturally the extrovert that's like loud and all of that stuff but I would I would literally pray at night like heavenly father please help me to be quiet today because I viewed (laughs) being quiet and calm as being like socially acceptable and the norm so isn't that Mm. interesting because that shows that there's not really a right way to be and how weird that we naturally think that the way we're not is the right way to be. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's crazy when you think about it like that. So I'll add a little bit of pepper to this, which is to say that I don't believe in introversion and extroversion. Oh, okay. Because I, I, I don't believe in character traits. And this is one big difference. I don't believe that you know you are quiet and you are naturally loud. It's skills. You have practiced loud Mm. i have practiced quiet so you know when people say this like i need to be more extroverted or i need to be more introverted it's usually this idea of practicing and finding a way that you enjoy uh practicing that skill and so if we're talking about like the skill of listening rather than being quiet because that ultimately comes back down to that skill of curiosity How can I get curious about the person who's talking and really ask questions that are exciting to ask, you know? And so that, that worked well for me when I need to shut up. And (laughs) if I need to be extroverted, it's like, well, what do I want to talk about that really I'm, I'm connecting with that I'm passionate about that I'm curious how people are going to respond to me as well. So there's, there's multiple ways, but I think just going from this idea of skills, I always think about everything as uh, an emotional muscle, let's say. That mm-hmm. just needs a little bit more gym time before you can pick up that very heavy weight or, you know, impress people at the, at the beach or whatever it is that you want to do. Is it okay to decide there's some skills that you don't care about? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, absolutely. Totally. Totally makes sense, you know. And um, yeah, you know, some people care about some skills. Like, uh, I know that I don't practice perfectionism a lot. For me, um, you know, the approach How relaxing. that I... Yeah. 
the approach that I take is is iterations, kind of like you know Elon Musk Musk launching SpaceX rockets. The idea is that it was let's go fast as fast as possible until we've got like a minimum viable product. Let's experiment, take the feedback, and then iterate. So mm. it's this iteration loop that led to failure, 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 success, success, many successes. And it's not just success from luck, it's success from practiced effort, skill, mm. developed developed skill. And so taking that approach, I'm, I'm like, cool, let's iterate. First iteration, it's out there. And then what I find is that iteration being out there, talking about it, sharing it with people, or just even producing it, that action actually gives me pause for thought. And then I come back to the second thing. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to change this. And all of, all of a sudden, iteration two, iteration three, iteration four. Mm. And before we know it, we've iterated our way to skill, confidence, success. Yeah. And I think like if I say one thing, then that is what I said. And that is fact. And I always remember now that just because I said one thing yesterday doesn't mean I have to feel the same way today. It's not a fact. It's just my point of view on yesterday but today's a new day <laughs> that's it exactly and giving people the space to change i think is yes. the flip side of that of saying like i don't hold anyone to their opinions that they had yesterday i of course i'm going to still act as if that opinion is in place but if they say oh i don't i don't believe that anymore you're like oh okay that's cool tell me about that let's get curious well what, mm. what happened why did you change like yeah and yeah. Then start that process. And then everything's not so serious. I think sometimes I take everything so serious and mm. it's so important, but really nothing matters. Nothing really matters that much. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that there is, uh, for people who struggle with, you know, depression, bipolar, things like that, do you think that there's a person out there that really could not be helped with this type of stuff? Do you think there's, there's a mindset that can't be changed? Um, I think it comes back to two things, which is, you know, thing number one is to say, if this person has a predisposition, they've been tested for it, things like that. Um, there's always going to be an intervention strategy, but it's, it's based on like, you know, it can be something very hard to go through. Um, it will require medications for some cases. And I'm not one to speak of that. I don't like treatment with medications. I prefer treatment with strategies and practice and things like that, because, you know, by and large, a lot of pharmaceutical interventions are shown to be suboptimal, shall we mm -hmm. say, compared to- It's like to, a Band-Aid. Yeah, like, you know, getting out there, like exercising your body is much, it's a much better uh, prescription for depression than any pill. You know, there was a study that was based out of Australia that actually showed this to far greater uh, result. Exercise actually was a better, a better thing for people who were suffering from depression. So, um, is there someone that, you know, it's probably beyond my, you know, my training, my credentials to actually say that I think mm -hmm. what, what I can say is that if people have stopped functioning, this is a problem that, that, um, is usually for someone with the right licenses because it's a very sensitive topic and someone, you know, it's, it's something that I hold against a lot of the coaching industry, especially in the U S there's a huge coaching industry that connects with this idea of you manifest whatever is your destiny. And I'm like, cool. Why aren't you a billionaire then? Why yeah. are you coaching people for, you know, like $5,000 a call? What's going on here? You know? And yeah. I think that is a frustrating and that feels debilitating when you do struggle with your mental health because it's, it makes you again, go back to what's wrong with me. Like if I yeah. should just be able to choose not to feel like this, 
now I'm just feeling worse because what's wrong with me that I can't get exactly. over this or can't get past this. Exactly. And and for, for me, the solution is um, it's very much cognitive. It's very much like I became the person that I needed when I was younger as well to, to be able to help myself. I learned about it. And now my system for this is actually, you know, it's helped a lot of people as well. Um, but, you know, helping, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, people who are functioning, but really want to reach that potential, get rid of these old strategies, these old, you know, things that the brain is, you know, conditioned into doing. Mm. So, um, you know, coming back to this again, I, I would never trust someone, uh, a client who's, um, you know, struggling with functioning to one of these new age coaches who talk about, you know, manifestation and things like that. Like, no, it's not going to happen. Trauma-informed coaching, some type of somatic um, trauma release as well. You know, there are multitudes of, um, you know, interventions that are out there. So, you know, I'm always happy to point people in the directions that I believe in as well. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the Human Givens Institute in the UK, uh, there's probably practitioners out here in the US as well. You know, and these are licensed psychotherapists who are really good at what they do um, to get someone on their feet. Yeah, because you know? there's gets to a point where you're just not functioning at all. And it's exactly like, yeah, exercise would help with depression, but I can't even fathom exercising right now. You know what I mean? When you're in that, when you're in <laughs> totally. that, not right now, I'm not in that brain right now, but I have been before yes. and it feels yes. so hopeless. So it's so interesting to think like, to see someone who, you know, thought suicide was the answer, but here you are saying you haven't had a depressive episode in over two years and you seem so like functioning. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the depression, Succeeding, actually... not even just functioning, you're like excelling. <laughs> no, I just, you know, what it comes down to is, is, um, I replaced depression with ambition when I was, you know, when I left South Africa and then after that, and, and aggression as well and judgment and persecution and all that kind of stuff. And it was a band-aid. It, it just was a distraction. And when I had that conversation with my mother and she said, you've never been happy, it started with the exploration and the practice of how do I resolve these conflicts so that, you know, I can live happy because then you can be happy ever after. And the simple concept of you will never arrive. You know, people think if I just achieve this one thing, I'll be okay. Like you will never arrive at those points where everything is in alignment. You might have that moment for like an hour, you know, yeah. studies show with regard to like the change in lottery winners, it's maximum a year before they return to a baseline of what state were they in before, even with the change in environment, they're still going to go back to that state. So how do we elevate? How do you see the world? And that's where mm -hmm. we come in. And this idea of, cool, let's practice different pathways. Let's also create some internal resources that will view things differently. Like I said, the curiosity is one of six, you know? Let me yeah. make sure I'm meeting my needs. And we talked about, I think, five of the nine human givens, mm -hmm. which are those needs, just to make sure that we're ticking those boxes, just like exercise is one of those boxes. I feel like for most people who are struggling, it's support from the tribe, the others, the groups that will really help them out a lot a lot and usually a little bit more of a specialized help is what people need and so more connection humans are beautiful and when we can take care of each other we can achieve amazing things as well and that's really like the, the mindset that i've got where it's very much humanists humans are beautiful creatures yes. and how do we move in alignment with that connection 
is my love language. Like that is why I do this. <laughs> I could be having a really bad day and then I get on and do a podcast and I connect with another human and just vulnerably open up about things. And you always feel better. You always feel good after connecting with another beautiful human. So I have one more question because you talked about being an a-hole. So when do you feel like you stopped <laughs> being an a-hole and how did that happen? <laughs> um, <laughs> part of it was um, this, there's an exercise that I do, you know, the more that we can bring your thinking in line with reality. And so, you know, I'm sure you've heard of like Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and all of that. These guys are psychotherapists where they go into the mind the thing is, is that according to science, this is something that's called falsifiable, which is I can lie and I'll get a positive on the test. But likewise, I can tell the truth and get a positive on the test as well. So it's not something that's actually easily proven by observing it. So, well, based on that, I went to door number two, which was behavioral um, psychology. What can we observe? What are the effects? If we can observe something, then we can start making hypotheses about what's going on in the mind, not the other way around. So the observable is very important. And if we can get what we believe connecting together with what's observable, then we can come to a better place. We need some kind of feedback loop from reality. And one of the best places socially to get this is um, something that was introduced to me. It's called peppering. So the last time I did this, I think it was Thanksgiving dinner about a year ago. And I record these because they're great to have. You sit down and everybody gets two minutes where the focus is on them and everybody around them speaks for like 20 or 30 seconds. And they just say, I love this about you. You did this thing. I, I love it. It's great. I really, I really enjoyed this part of my experience of you, whatever it is. But for 20 seconds, like each person just peppers the person who's receiving it with compliments and what do they appreciate about this person? And, you know, in, in times where you're suffering a little bit more and you need some support, it's always great to have that on your phone. Just put your headphones in, lie down and listen to this. And that type of thing helps tune into your empathy as well, that you can get into their minds and see what they're seeing of you, which helps you appreciate yourself a lot more. So I'm going to come back around to your question, right? So, uh, can you ask your question again quickly? What made you stop being an a-hole? Or are so you still what, an a-hole? Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> um, I can be if you want. Right, um, we all can be. <laughs> so it came back down to this idea that I started doing this exercise with people. And who I wanted to be was a person that was strong and in control and blah, 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 blah. And what kept coming back to me was I was kind. That I kept giving. And that I could always understand others. And, and I was like, huh. I guess I am. And then I started acting a lot more in alignment with that. Started giving more of my time and started being a little bit kinder and leaning into the things. Cause I wanted to be, I wanted to be the, the genius that everybody would look at and be like, wow, you're so smart. And then be like, yes, and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, that was a terrible way of, you know, distancing myself from people. So how do I bring myself yeah. closer? And okay. You appreciate that about me. All right. I'm going to run with that. I'm going to go with that and say, okay, cool. I am that thing. That's super cool. I remember there was an old lady at my church and she always talked so highly about her husband. And it was when me and my husband were first married. And the first three years of our marriage was not the best three years of our lives. <laughs> we did not love each other as much as we do now. But um, 
I remember her just always talking highly about him and stuff. And I just was asking her marriage advice because she was really, she's really old and she's really amazing. And I was like, I want to be like you when I grow up anyway. And she was just like, the way you talk about him is the way he's going to be. So when I was talking so poorly about him, he was living up to what I was thinking or saying about him. But when I stopped thinking that and I start saying like how amazing he is, it's crazy because then my brain for evidence of that. And then he became that instead. Mm-hmm. So it really, I'm like, really, is it even about him? Was it all just my perspective or did he start living true to what I was saying? Oh, well, that's it. Especially if he could, you know, if he heard you, uh, I mean, I, you know, you're reminding me of a situation that happened to me when I was in school. So at the time, um, some kid wrote my parents a letter saying like, I'm the biggest drug dealer in the school and I'm the biggest drug user in the school. Of course, my parents reacted like any parent would react and, you know, grounded me straight away and was, we're going to talk about this and very angry with me and um, without even looking for any evidence of it. At the time, um, you know, was I taking drugs? Yes. Was I taking hard drugs? No. And was I dealing drugs? Not really. Um, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't like, no, not really, not really. What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah. Um, did I, did I give some to my friends on at a party? Sure. But I wasn't selling it or anything like that. Okay. And, um, and so it was clearly someone who didn't know me, who was shifting the blame onto me. And at that time I wasn't, I didn't care what my parents thought. And then that, you know, that came out and my godfather took a look at this and, you know, I found out the story later. Um, about a couple months later, my godfather took a look at this and my parents were like, what do you think we should do? And he tore up the letter in front of both of them and said, Justin would never do anything like this. Justin is a, you know, good, solid person who da, 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 da. And he said all these things. And I was like, whoa. And pretty much a couple months later, I stopped drinking, you know, stopped all drug activity and, you know, clean and sober for now 41 years, uh, sorry, 21 years, you know. I haven't touched anything because I don't need to, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of that started because someone said I was something that I wasn't at the time, but that inspired me. I, I wanted to be that person that he saw. That's amazing. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. I have like yeah. two more questions. Are you happy? Yes, absolutely. Happiest that I've ever been in my life. Uh, I would say it took me a while to find my happy, but it, I did, you know, and I think, you know, I never knew, I never thought it would be, you know, the, the concept that you can't get away from is when you wake up in the morning, are you excited for the day or are you happy with being in bed and thinking about your life? And ever since I met my wife, I'm very happy to lie in bed. I'm ha- very happy to think about my day. And we've got three wonderful dogs. And every morning I'm just like, oh, good how are you and for a lot of my life i was like oh another day i've got to figure it out oh Mm. and i think that that's that's something that shifted in me as well is getting excited about life and just asking the question if you're feeling like that what is it that you would like to feel in the mornings and how do we start step by step shaping your life so that you're excited to wake up in the morning and be connected in the ways that you value and do what it is that you want to do, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not like, Oh, I want to be living on a beach retired. Cool. Most people could do that for a year before getting bored out of their minds because they are not significantly showing up for a community that they want to show up for. We yeah. really receive so much nutrition, so much psychological, emotional nutrition when we show up for other people. 
you know, service to others, but service in ways that we want to be valued for. Mm, yeah. And it's like that, you know, I'll be happy when issue. Yeah, exactly. I'll be happy when I have this money. I'll be happy when my house looks like this. I'll be happy yes. when, and you yes. know what? That's kind of a beautiful thing is that like back then, what would you have said? What would you have said? Like, I'll be happy when, and oh, now yeah. is any of that even really what makes you happy? No, sitting in bed with your dogs and your wife, like that's when, what makes you happy. You know, what was a good exercise for me is, um, you know, oh, I'll be happy when I have a, a lot of money. What you're putting out into there, into your mind, as well as the universe is that you're, you don't actually have a lot of money now. I'll be happy when I have a lot of money, which means right now I perceive myself to not have a lot of money. So just say like of the money that I want on a scale of one to 10, how much am I there? Or a scale of one to a hundred, how much am I there? Instead of saying when I, when I reach a hundred, I'll be happy. You say, cool, I'm at a 20 out of a hundred. And I'm very happy with that. I'm happy with what I have. It just needs to be turned up. So mm -hmm. cool. How can I turn it up to 22, to 23, to 24, you know, by doing actions that I enjoy doing? Yeah, I think that I am somewhere in between like, I'll be happy when and then just like giving up and being like, okay, I'm happy with nothing. You know what I mean? Right. I think there's yeah. got to be something that helps me lead. Like you said, keep turning it up, but being mm -hmm. happy at each level while you're turning it up. I right. think that's where I lose it is that sometimes I am like, I'm never going to get to 100. So I just have to learn to be happy with zero. And I don't think <sighs> that's healthy either. No. So I want to be, I want to enjoy the journey. I just read the book called, um, the power of now. Have you read that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eckhart Tolle. Yes. Oh my gosh. That book changed my life. I'm like, oh, I want to be happy just existing. Like, <laughs> so I try to quiet and I'm, I'm getting yoga certified. And so I'm trying, and I learned about like the more chatter inside your mind, the less connected to your spiritual side you mm -hmm. are. And so I'm really really have a lot of in, internal chatter that is just out of control. So I'm really mm. trying to like bring it to in and calm it down and just be instead of do. I love mm. that saying like we're human beings, not human doings. Doings. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to be, and it's hard well, for me. <laughs> so when you say, so I want to just reflect if I may very quickly, yes, are you open please. to that? Okay. Yes. So you can you coach just, me. <laughs> <laughs> so you just said to me, I want to be. You know, mm -hmm. and it's tough for me. I'm trying to be, it's tough for me, which suggests that you're still striving towards a goal that you're not, you're not. And so the question is already, how are you being right now that is something that you enjoy or something that is interesting for you? So to ask that question, it's more this idea of if you wake up on a normal day and you just do whatever it is that you want to do, how is that already valuable? How is it that you can just exist on whatever level it is that you want to exist on and you are already valued by people or doing things that brings value to you? So for example, you're a mom, which means just even if you do nothing, you are valued by your kids. You're a wife, which means even if you do nothing, you are valued by your husband. You don't need to do anything. Of course, there are you know actions that will increase, decrease, things like that. But just by virtue of you being in relation to them, you are being. And it's valuable being as well. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, the idea is you are called to do certain things, like you're doing this podcast. So you just being you, trying to you know, put more of 
what you think is your value out into the world, that's you living through a value. And so you are being that also. And just by being that, you're already living in your values. So whatever your obligations are, that concept of that, like I need to do this or I got to do this. The question is, how am I already there? I pose that question again. How are you already there, wherever there is to you? As you can see, Justin is an overflowing wealth of knowledge. I could talk to him forever, but I do eventually have to end the episodes. So if you'd like to hear more about him, how can people find you and connect with you and work with you? Give me all that information. Sure, absolutely. Um, So uh, my website um, is myname.com, justinnope.com. And if people are interested in what I've got to say, they can go to the website. Um, I mean, I've got YouTube, I've got uh, a newsletter that goes out and I produce a podcast that goes out on that kind of stuff as well. But I think the number one thing is, is that I am um, I will have put together um, a, a little you know, opt-in thing, which is a 10 levers that you can pull to feel a lot more connected, a lot more stress-free, a lot more um, in control, right? So 10 levers to pull. And so there's going to be a little like educational thing on that with a downloadable kind of um, measurement that they can uh, see which lever is really, uh, you know, something that they can work on and some suggestions. Yeah. It's a little freebie for people that could help out a lot. And with that, I asked, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? I wish people saw um an invitation to constantly connect and to talk about the real open, vulnerable parts. Yeah. I love that. You came to the right place. Thank you so much for listening. I'll miss you till next time. But if you need more, no worries. You can go back and listen to the entire first season if you missed it. And, or connect with me on Instagram at beyond with Chelsea, where you never know what's going to happen next. (laughs) Link in the show notes. And remember, Lead with kindness because you never know what's going on for someone beyond their picket fence. Mm